Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 69 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and I have Dr. Justin Farnsworth here. He's a doctor of physical therapy, uh, first time guest, uh, and far from the first PPSC, uh, pain-free performance special certification alumni who's been on here. I've had John Russin, Cliff Minharski, who I've got to get back, David Otay, Logan Dubay, Kevin Mullins has been here a couple of times. Um, and you're the director of rehab for the PPSC. So it's great to have you on, brother. Awesome, man. Glad to be here. I'm glad you I'm glad I can be the last person to represent the PPSC. Very happy for that. <laughs> well, I, I you know, at some point I'll have to get around to Tasha and I get Dan and we'll work our way through everybody. But I like you guys. I like your guys' community. And you I pushed to the front of the line because, well, I saw you, met you for the first time, but saw you present at Raise the Bar in Florida just in February. And you kind of wowed the crowd. Everybody was like, holy shit, he's really good. And I guess you know, one of the, the things the guys are worried about was, well, poor Clifton couldn't make it on short notice. So you got thrown into the mix and they were like, well, like, I don't know what's going on here, right? No, no, no. Justin will be great. And honestly, you're probably one of the best presentations there. So, Dude, I appreciate that so much. It was actually really funny. So obviously it was short notice. Um and I went into it like, hey, this is kind of cool because literally no one knows who the hell I am. Like I'm a physical therapist coming from the, the clinical world, moving into the fitness industry, right? So I'm like, well, no one knows who I am. So there's zero expectation. Um, and I know Cliff sets the bar really high. You know, he, he's up there. He's probably got the best glutes in the room, easily the best haircut <laughs> and uh, maybe the, the most sarcastic person. And I'm like, I can't fuck this up. So I'm just going to go out. I'm going to do what I do. And if it's bad, it doesn't matter because I'm literally leaving today and then it'll be behind me. But uh, no, I, um, I had a great time, man. Being in front of people, I know there's some people that are really passionate about, you know, I want to write. Um, I'm going to do this and that. My passion is being in front of people and the energy you get from a crowd and holy shit, a crowd not wearing masks, a hundred people, <laughs> like you can see expressions. Have you ever get a presentation of people in masks? It's horrible. Because everyone's squinting and you're trying to figure out if they're laughing, if they're jiving with what you're saying, or if they're just angry. And you literally can't tell. Um, it was such a good time, though, man. I had such a good time there. Oh, you already hit on a couple of things I was going to ask you about. So we got to cycle around to it. So first of all, you're already the upper like uh, quintile of funny for guests. So you'll get an invitation back. I mean, like we're not talking quite Mike Isertel territory. Mike's a walking comedian. <laughs> But uh, no, that's actually funny. So, all right, this is going to be a good one. I like this. Well, okay. So you hit on a couple things here. And the, the fact that you come from the, the physical therapy world, and I, I'm fascinated by this whole concept of how we have different people within different aligned healthcare professions, either take this collaborative attitude and immerse themselves in the fitness industry, and they do really well. They make lots of money and they educate. Or, and I find I'm critical of some redshirt dietitians on this one, not all. But who take this combative attitude, it's like the music industry with Napster. It's like, oh, they're bad. We're going to sue them. But it's like dietitians are like in this fight for, no, personal trainers shouldn't talk about nutrition. That's our territory. And then some of them are like, guys, you can make a lot of money and do a lot of good by actually like aligning with these people and, and educating them and they'll line up to actually like hear you speak. So, you know, any thoughts on that dichotomy within physical therapy? And I suppose I'll take it even further. Uh, you know, what can trainers do to take advantage of the people like you, like Dr. Sam Spinelli, Dr. Jen Fraboni, like Quinn Hennick, uh, Tim DeFrancesco, a lot of really good people who do this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, how much time you have for this answer? So, I mean, here's the, here's the reality that that dichotomy, that dichotomy is fucking bullshit. Um, the reality is I don't care if you're a physical therapist. I don't care if you're an orthopedic surgeon. I don't care if you're a personal trainer we all do the same thing. Like we all try to help people within the scope of what we have available. And this constant battling that I've been, you know, part of because I've been in the fitness industry first, I was a strength coach, mostly professional athletes. So it's a little bit different than like a general population. Uh, moving in a clinician for 10 years and trying to make those relationships in my community. Like it's really just a, it's stupid. All the ego that goes with it is stupid. I don't give a fuck. If I have a doctoral degree behind my name or just a personal training certification, you can still be really good at what you do. Give two shits about the people in front of you and always make yourself better. Mm 
Um, and that's really the most important thing. But I know in my industry specifically, and this is why, I mean, I'm a black horse of my industry. I got out of my industry. Uh, I was sick of the this feeling of insurance-based care where people just come in, expect you to fix them, and you've got to see two to three to four of those people at the same time. And you're sitting there going, I've got a doctorate degree and I don't feel like I'm really helping anyone. Like I kind of am, at least they're doing something right. Better than nothing. Um, but that form of care doesn't freaking work. So you have people like myself, you have people like John, you have people that went the, you know, doctoral route, if you will, which was awesome for education and learning. But I'll be honest, man, physical therapists are horrible at actually keeping people better. Like you heard it here first, we're really good at making people feel better, but I would put any strength coach that I know who's half good at what they do yourself, the Clifton Harskies of the world, like they would do much better in the long term on the longevity piece and making sure people don't come back. And that's a really big issue that I could spend hours talking on the whys, the hows. Um, but when it comes down to it, man, we all do the same thing and we should all really work together. And I don't really care if I feel like a personal trainer is going to take my business because that's not what I do. I help bridge that gap from I'm hurt. Now I can train. Now I'm like, you know what? That's where, what I'm really good at stops. I'm going to send it to the next best person who's going to get you farther. Because um, it's about that person in front of you. Like that's what it comes down to. I I have a couple of first, um physical therapists here locally in Edmonton that I, I refer my business to. Uh, Darren Bishop is one of them. I'll give him a shout out. He sometimes listens to these. I've had him on the past and uh, Dr. Jason Dick. And they're great on the strength side of stuff. I mean, Darren is a very active practitioner himself of, of lifting. And Jason has worked with so many powerlifters and athletes, and he just really knows the strength training world. And for me, it's a prerequisite that if I'm going to send someone to a physical therapist, they're going to have to have a strong understanding and background in, um, in, in strength training. Right. I mean, I, I, an exception with that would be if someone who specializes in say pelvic floor health and, you know, you're, you're, you're sending people off to deal with those kind of like niche things, which is super important stuff. But that for me, and, and I believe the same thing, like I have the guys that I work with, they don't, you know, have the two to four coming and going it's individualized focused care and to make sure that that client's really well taken care of. And the reality of, people who lift and work out and you have these sort of nagging things that go on over time, that stuff's, that stuff's there. And yeah, sometimes it is about pain management and discomfort management in the moment. And it's ultimately hoping that a person is like quote cured and never has this issue again and, and never comes back. But the reality is, is we lift, we, we work out like long time lifers. There's going to be just nagging shit. And you're far more likely to have a very loyal person who sends you more referral business if you take good care of them and do what's best for them by helping them deal with the issue as opposed to just, let's give you some temporary relief and we'll see you, you know, two appointments next week. Yeah, and I think the, the best synergy is people seeing a clinician and a coach at the same time. I don't care if you're injured I can help you with your injured spot and your coach can help you with all the other stuff. So I mean, this is a talk that I'll, that I'll give when we talk about someone like the, uh, the pain client. So we, you know, we do a couple of courses. We just did an online programming course that went really well. Uh, we talk about different client avatars and I spent you know, two hours talking about like the pain client, the person who literally has a pain point, has an injury. And the unfortunate thing is in the training world, um, there's some scope of practice issues for sure. But there's also just kind of a general apprehension around pain. Like as soon as someone has pain, it's like, oh, I don't know what the fuck this is. I'm either just going to do more of that same thing to make the pain go away, which never works, or I'm just going to do nothing. Um, and the unfortunate thing is in the medical world, I mean, that's what we do. We just shut people down. We're like, hey, you're hurt. You hurt your back deadlifting. That's the common, like, it's obviously the deadlift's fault. It's like, no, it was your fault that you weren't ready to deadlift that way. But we know deadlifts are actually really good for your back. There's a new meta-analysis that literally just came out this past year that says, believe it or not, posterior chain strengthening for chronic low back pain, better than just general exercise. Mind blown right now. Like, holy shit, we've been saying that for 20 years. But now that we have an actual article written by people that don't actually train, okay, now it makes sense. Um, 
But the synergy that happens is we just shut people down. Uh, we make them feel broken. We tell them to go swim. We tell them they have the back of an 80 year old when they're 35, you're going to eventually need surgery. Just really take it easy. And you look at the health metrics of the world right now, and we're not sending people up for success. We are setting them up for failure. And even just past the physical, the hormonal, um, for some people, the spiritual feeling of just fucking being able to be physical is such an important aspect that every clinician I know should know good strength coaches. And we should be trying to push people to still be training and working out unrelated areas, even if they have an injury. Um, because we know there are multiple things that are beneficial. I mean, shit, we know that if you have a broken arm that you can't move for six to eight weeks, fine. But if you train the other arm, guess what? You get that neurological spillover effect, right? And you get 50% strength gains on the uninvolved side to what you get on the involved side. Right? So it's like, but what do we do? We just we make people feel scared and we tell them to do nothing. Um, and we can do so much better than that. Absolutely. I have a longtime client. He's a four-time week guy slipped on the edge of a pool at Mexico three months ago, broke his leg. Actually had to have surgery down there, fucked up his vacation. Great human being. And I didn't have him for three months. He really had trouble getting around. So he was actually back this week and he's in a boot cast. He sprained the same ankle last year in a bloody boot and he was going around the same boot cast. So it's just bad luck, right? So what do we do this week? I just split up his workouts, gave a whole bunch of like upper body stuff to do. He wanted to train four times this week. Okay, cool. No problem. But the first day in, I stuffed his good leg in on a leg extension. Like, no, you're, you're going to do a little something, right? Like, um, you know, the second day, okay, cool. I'm going to have you do some single leg hamstring curls. Cool. And I've got an article on T Nation that actually goes into this, this cross-education of, yeah, if you train the good side, it has, like, there's a whole bunch of studies on this stuff that shows that it is muscle sparing and strength sparing, Right. And that's all people that think, oh God, I'll have one gigantic fucking arm and one shrivel up arm. And that's actually not at all what happens. It's net. Yeah. I mean, you're going to see some atrophy from an injured limb, but that's a guarantee. If you don't do anything, you might as well do whatever you can to try to minimize that effect. Right. Absolutely. It's also like, it's like telling a professional baseball player, a pitcher, a tennis player who has literally normal asymmetry. Like, no, bro, not your right arm. you got to work out that left arm to catch up to your right arm because your right arm. So it's like they fucking use that thing all the time. That's why. And it's not even that much bigger. So it's like there's this really just big disconnect that we have. I know in medicine, I'll tell you this, my I have grad professors who get so mad at me when I say this, but it's true. Our strength and initiating education in a doctor doctoral program is horseshit. We spent, so we spent two days. It was a, the... Exercise education we had was mostly built around, here's three sets of 10, here's a TheraBand, here's, here's the different loading of a TheraBand at different lengths. So you didn't memorize that shit. You didn't have to actually really understand how to strength train people. Um, and we had a weekend course that wasn't elective, it wasn't even mandatory, to help us study for the CSCS if we wanted to take it, all right? This is what the weekend ended up being. All of us were assigned an exercise out of the textbook and we had to go in front of the room and demonstrate the coaching aspects of that point, right? Of that exercise. And the most hilarious thing ever, you have people that have never really trained much in front of a group of physical therapy students trying to teach someone how to do a clean and jerk. And it's like, but you've never trained before. But this, that, was, that was the course. That was our straight training course. Um, and I'm like, shit, man. Why didn't we just get some personal trainers from the community to come in here and actually teach us that? Fuck, why didn't we go to an actual gym with a squat rack and kettlebells and like actual things for loading and learn from the people in that industry how to do this stuff well? That's crazy. I always use the analogy, I, how you started with how ridiculous it would be to try to teach a basketball player to shoot free throws with their offhand, right? Like, it's pointless, right? So we're, we're going to have those. And I like the way you said this natural asymmetry. Anyway, humans are not symmetrical creatures. Our heart, our liver, slightly off the one side of our body. There's, we have a, a dominant hand and a, and a hand that you couldn't write with to save your life, or you'd have to take years to learn how to do it. So it's ridiculous to think that we're supposed to train people into this pure uh, symmetry. But I always find it kind of a red flag when trainers start talking about imbalances. Guess what? Every client you'll ever work with will be imbalanced. And over time, as 
injury and wear and tear is a tear accumulates, there's going to be more asymmetry. I have asymmetry. My left shoulder and arm is nowhere near as strong as my right now due to a chronic thing, whatever. Bilaterally, I'm pretty good. You know, it shows up in some unilateral stuff. No big deal. Like you wouldn't look at me in the mirror and notice any difference. And it doesn't interfere with my training too much. So who gives a shit, right? I'm not going to freak out and go, well, I better not train my right side until I somehow make the left side feel better. And it's something that I see my physical therapist for. And yeah, there's a little bit of like occasionally dry needling or something just to try to like loosen it up a little bit. But most of the focus is on, okay, cool. Here's some useful mobility stuff to be able to get into a range and then strengthen it in that range and keep working at it. And honestly, it has helped. And it's funny. It's like, that's probably what 5% of what you do versus flipping it saying, you need to spend 95% of your program working on your asymmetry and then 5% actually training. Um, you know, it's funny. I want to take this another step farther. So there, there's always, I think, this big conversation around injury prevention. Um, and the reality is we can't prevent injuries. We know this. I think the word should be more risk mitigation. We can certainly reduce risk, right? Um, and I, this is kind of a cool study. So there's this uh, couple studies done in the military. Um, so there are a couple, you know, well-known physical therapists that have the ability to work some of their systems inside the military, some of those contracts. And the military is a cool study because you get everybody. So you get the person that works at a desk and you get all the way up to special forces. So it's a relatively nice representation of probably the rest of the world or the rest of the country. Um, and it's funny talking about asymmetries. Asymmetries are normal until to a point they may actually cause you to have a problem. So it's always trying to keep people above the threshold. So some of the things that they found, like ankle dorsiflexion asymmetry, I think it was over four and a half centimeters, was pretty highly predictive of injury in that setting. Um, poor single leg stability. So they use the white balance test, which I'm sure most people are familiar with. Um, it's actually a really well-researched tool. Uh, you can do upper, lower body, upper and lower body uh, screens on those. Um, I think it was over 72% asymmetry on the legs and 80% on the arms. Don't quote me on that. I have all that written down somewhere. Um, it was actually pretty highly correlated with people getting hurt. And then another big thing on that was people not feeling confident after their prior injury. So, you know, someone gets hurt, right? Previous injury, we can't unring that bell. Biggest predictor of future injury is previous injury. Okay. But what ends up happening, especially in the rehab setting, is we are doing all these metrics of, all right, you had a knee surgery. I want you to sit your ass on the table. We're going to do a non-functional leg extension. Make sure that's on the diameter is strong. Now curl your hamstring. Let's make sure the ratio is good. We do some hop testing. And then we forget to ask how confident they are. Um, and especially after a couple like ACLs, that's actually the biggest predictor of people getting hurt within two years is limb kinesiophobia. There's actually the Tampa scale of kinesiophobia kinesiophobia. Am I scared of literally moving my limb? Um, and we've neglect that. And that was actually a, another big predictor in these studies about like people getting hurt again. So I think it just goes to speak uh, when we all work with people who are injured, which is literally everybody, everybody has pain. Normal part of the human experience is to have pain. Don't neglect. Yeah. The physical, but don't neglect that psychological aspect, which is probably even more important. Yeah, fuck, nothing more to add to that at all. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I will kind of say this. <clears throat> Anybody who's worked with clients knows those clients are who are scared. They're scared of getting hurt. They're, they're fearful about exercise. And I think part of the way through that is for have the client trust you and your capability to graduate them into moving really well again. Um, brain is not functioning today. So I'm struggling with this one. Um, I think, you know what? I'm just, every once in a while, I flub something on air and it's pretty rare, but uh, I'll just let you kind of Bro, just, just take a shot of that gray goose up there. You'll be fine. My bar is behind me. Uh, I've been filming a lot of these. Uh, behind me. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Sorry. Shit. It's again, goes back to what you're saying about people who use language based in dysfunction. If we make our people feel like they're broken, that they're hurt, that they're weak, that they're incapable, then it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy in how it manifests in the gym setting and, and outside of it. So like you, I'm a big fan of, especially when clients use language about things that are broken about them. I try to redirect that and say, you know, Hey, no, you're not broken. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong here. 
okay, I, I like the word deconditioned over week because it, it doesn't have that mm -hmm. stigma to it. And you say, listen, you're a little deconditioned. You haven't worked out in a while. We're going to get you stronger again. You do this, blah, blah, blah. And like you were basically saying, the environment that you create for that client, whether or not they feel confident in what they're doing, I mean, I've anecdotally noticed that that has a massive impact on their outcome in terms of how well they do and, and avoiding future injury. And we all know that client who, oh, doctor said, I... I, I shouldn't work out. And then like no amount of coaxing or, or, you know, Hey, listen, like this is good for you gets them to, and we know a, we're not supposed to quote contradict doctors, but we also know that sometimes. No, get that fuck that doctor. Yeah. Fuck yeah, that doctor. And I'll, I'll tell you why um, that doctor, generally a primary care physician or an orthopedic, first of all, they don't fucking train. Like, I'm sorry. I know a lot of them. I've met a lot of them. They're really nice people. But talking about staying in your scope, um, talk to any primary care physician. They get a weekend course of built around exercise out of seven years of freaking medical school. That's not their specialty. It's the same thing when they make dietary recommendations. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Actually, here's a funny story based around that. So I have high blood pressure, high cholesterol that runs in my family. My grandma had it. Uh, my mom had it. All right. And I go to my primary care physician who's a little bit younger. Um, a little bit not wanting to have conversations to get to know me. They just get the reading of, well, your blood pressure is a little bit high. Um, so we're going to put you on the Cinepro. The Cinepro is a small dose, um, you know, hypertension medication. So I'm like, whatever, let me just take this and see if it pulls that down a little bit. And then because I'm on that, I have to go get blood work done every six months. Whatever, I'll just do that for now. I have no symptoms. It's fairly healthy. Like, you know, 10% body fat, all those like metrics that are like, hey, this person's not obese, right? Um, so we go get a little blood work, comes back. Hey, your cholesterol is running a little bit high. The conversation the doctor had with me was built all around. You need to change your diet. And I looked at her. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, I eat better than you do. I eat better than probably every single patient that you have that comes in this office. I literally exercise two hours a day. I exceed everything that you were taught in school of exercise recommendations. So don't tell me that I need to change my diet like that, that, and this is the disconnect people have. So they learn what they learn in school. They memorize the shit for the board so they can finally pass. And then you get to the real world and you have that individual sitting in front of you and nine times out of 10, you can throw all the stuff you learn out the window because it doesn't apply. Sometimes it does. And that knowledge is important. I'm not discounting that, I'm not calling every doctor an idiot, but you got to stay in your lane. Um, and you have to see that person in front of you. And that's the problem. And the, when you, when people hear doctor, they think all encompassing knowledge. And again, I I'm, shit, I'm a doctor. Like, cool. Whatever. Like I respect everybody. I respect physicians, orthopedics, but they don't know everything. And that's the unfortunate thing. Well, two things that I'll take from that is bedside manner. There's research on bedside manner in terms of how the client outcomes, the way that their physicians or clinicians interact with them. That actually has a profound effect on people's outcomes. And that trickles down to the way that we interact with our clients as personal trainers, right? That stuff is as solid as it gets. And it's very clear and evident in this particular case that this person did not turn around and, you know, ask those questions. I, I've been pushing uh, motivational interviewing the book, uh, especially the fitness and nutrition one. And I think it's kind of funny because some of the examples, like in the way that they do all these reflections and summaries and stuff, I'm like, okay, cool. This stuff's actually really patronizing. But as long as you understand the philosophy, just don't go to the extent the book does, because I, I promise you, someone's going to look at you and be like, fuck off. But if you approach it with a collaborative mindset that the client is actually quite capable and is a partner and you're not being an authority and you're just blindly telling them what to do and not listening to them, then that person is going to trust you more and they're going to have a way better outcome. There's also another thing that sort of popped in there that I've noticed, and actually I'll get your opinion on it, is whenever we're dealing with pregnant clients, now that's a tricky thing for sure. But for the most part, I found that training a pregnant client is really very much the same as anybody else, as long as there's not any really complicated shit going on. And, you know, once you get kind of deeper into the second trimester, you know, you don't have them laying flat on their back or, you know, you careful about the right side and they're, they're, the physics of their movement is going to change a little bit as their center of gravity changes as they get into the third trimester. And you're definitely not going to be, well, let's go for a whole bunch of PRs in third trimester. If you've got someone who's pretty active, you can pretty much train them the same way. Although, you know, most of the way through you gear things down in the third trimester. If you've got someone who's not super strong or doesn't have much experience, you're probably going to go pretty easy on them through the whole process. But doctors ultimately 
if they turn around and say, hey, keep training, this is good for you, which we know on average is the truth, then their ass isn't covered if someone, God forbid, spontaneously has a miscarriage, which is far more statistically common than what we hear about all the time. People don't like talking about this stuff. So they cover their ass by saying, hey, don't work out, right? And that's one of my biggest pet peeves. But the danger with the personal trainer is that's something you got to be really careful about turning around and going, uh, so I usually kind of like, hey, really love it if you get a second opinion from, you know, a doctor who specializes in this. And you're always hoping you get a doctor who, because there are a lot of doctors out there who actually value physical exercise and resistance training. And, you know, your thoughts on that whole dynamic and navigating it. So it's, it's funny. Um, I know so much more about pre postpartum than I should. Um, Cause I, that's not something I specialize in, but my wife did for a while. So my wife's a physical therapist. Uh, she's a women's health specialist. Um, she was pregnant. She went through all this stuff herself. So the knowledge I have in this space is actually a lot more than a lot of other therapists. Um, here's a couple of things that we know about pregnancy. And it's funny you bring up the acting out of fear. I want to make sure I'm not the person. But what about on the flip end where you tell someone that you shouldn't exercise and then they have chronic back pain for 10 years after they give birth and they have prolapse or they have some issue with their pelvic floor that literally could have been maybe mitigated by exercise, you're not liable for that, which is a really weird thing. That's the key, um, liable for it. Yeah, yeah. but um, we know if you have been exercising, when you are pregnant, you can exercise the same. When you're pregnant is not the time to make gains and set new PRs, it's the time to maintain. Um, and it's interesting, laying on the back and laying on the right side, there's actually no real hard evidence to show that that's inherently dangerous because what ends up happening is you get uncomfortable as the pregnant person and you will move out of that position before we have any issue with shunting blood flow to the fetus. That's been pretty well established. Now that doesn't mean you go out and tell people don't lay on like <laughs> lay on your back as long as you want, but the reality in it, like, so this is the textbook. The textbook says, don't do this and that. The real world scenario is that person just gets uncomfortable and they move anyway. So does it really matter? Um, if you look at uh, a lot of the evidence that comes out of um, some of the physician groups that treat women here in the United States, uh, their statement is basically, yeah, just exercise with what's comfortable. Um, and a lot of the exercise becomes self-limiting. I mean, you're in your third trimester. Should you squat? Yeah, you need to. And actually, that's prep for birth. If you think about how they give birth in every other country except America, where we strap people on a freaking table, crank their legs apart and put them in the most uncomfortable position. How do most people in a lot of countries give birth? They squat, they squat, and that actually sets it up for a nice angle for baby to come out well. So we know squatting like loads of pelvic floor, but should you do it with a bar on your back in the third trimester? Probably not. Maybe like a physio ball on a wall with a little weight in front, if that's appropriate. Like, so we know there are ways we can move the needle on that. It's actually a real passion point for me because having heard my wife tell me all this stuff, but then physically going, not physically, she went through it physically. Um, me being there with her during this whole process and seeing in America, how we treat pregnant women, like it's the same thing. And I, I know I'm very passionate about this. And I know there are people in this industry that do a really good job, but most of the time they don't give a shit. It's like, let's make sure the baby's okay. And who gives a fuck about mom? Um, and that's a problem. Like that's, that's something we got to change. <clears throat> I think there's a lot of value in uh, more education for personal trainers because I'm actually shocked at how few of my female clients, I've had a few women I've trained through pregnancy, but in like 11 and almost a half years of training, I think I've only trained three clients through their pregnancies. It just, just so happened that it was just not a very common thing with my clientele, despite having, I'd say 55% of my clientele being women. But it's still, I think it's something really good. I know Girls Gone Strong does some really good stuff in the industry about that. Um, you know, I've got a couple of local trainer friends of mine. If I've got someone who's, like, especially wants to get into pelvic floor stuff or a client who's totally new to me who is pregnant, I'm probably just going to refer them to my friend Hannah Gray or Jessica Lekasor. They're both like great local trainers who really know their shit with this. But if it's someone who I've been working with for a while and we have a great relationship, God, yes, I'm going to train them through pregnancy. Uh, and I just, again, I'm just praying that I've got a doctor who you know, values it and doesn't just say, well, I'm going to cover my ass because if something goes wrong, but I told them not to train and they weren't training, well, we know it wasn't the training. So therefore, you know, I'm safe. Right. And yeah, that's a tough and, that, and that's assuming too, like, we're assuming they're not high risk. Obviously there are certain things that some, I know some females that had to be in bed rest for four months 
because they were very high risk. Maybe they had twins. Maybe there was like that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your normal risk, uh, pregnant individual who really should be training because it's like, Hey, I'm going to run a marathon in nine months with never training for it. Well, shoot, like you wouldn't do that. So why would you want to go through the birthing process without having prepped for that from a physical state? It's really no different. Um, I know giving birth isn't like doing a powerlifting meet, but it's strenuous and it's physical. And for some people, certainly emotionally traumatic. And it's like, we can help prep them for that so they can have a much better outcome after the fact, rather than, oh, you gave birth and you pee yourself and you have back pain. Well, that's normal. It's not fucking normal. Um, and we know we can help with that. So again, assuming they're normal risk, because there are some nuances in there, we should be doing that stuff. Absolutely. Totally makes sense. Um, I have a client right now, unfortunately, there was some stuff that they weren't sure what was going on. So the doctors waved her off from training. I'm like, ah, shit. And I kind of knew, but this client herself is a doctor and her husband's a doctor who I trained. So I, I kind of, they really know what they're doing and they had someone really, really skilled, but it looks like everything's okay. So she's probably going to come back and train a little bit more before birth. And then she'll be back after, but you know, that one I'm comfortable playing it safe because I feel like they actually have some qualified uh, people there. Let's take this a little further in because you had a, I dug around, look for like stuff to talk to you about. And you had a post that I agreed with about training older adults and the intensity side of stuff. And I, you know, I got a, I got a couple of 71 year old retirees, Larry's all over my social media. People get to watch him like do it. Heavy farmers carries and heavy trap bar deadlifts. And yeah, he, I he tell squats, Larry. He, he squats two plates to parallel uh on a safety bar right larry's a lot of fun and it's this whole concept about like we got to go easy and be careful with older adults and you don't want to have them doing any power or jumping type stuff and you don't want to have them down on the ground god forbid they fall and actually that's all the shit they should be doing so i'll just leave it to you to throw that out there so um yeah man uh, it's like you should treat an older adult no different than you would treat an athlete like literally they need the same things and they actually need it more because once you hit the age of 50 what are we losing power per decade? It's like 15, 20%. What are we losing strength per decade? A little bit less than that. Well, shoot, when I'm 80, what do I need to do to not fall and break a hip? Well, I need power to get my leg in front of me. And God forbid I get on the floor, I need the strength to get myself off the floor. Um, so remember, again, this is being surrounded by really good people in my life has been extremely helpful. So there was a grad school professor of mine. Her name is Dale Avers. Dale Avers wrote the physical therapy textbook on geriatrics. So every PT school buys her textbook. She wrote the specialty exam on geriatrics. She was very adamant about older adults being trained appropriately and hard and understanding that age is not a fucking disability. I, if it was, I wouldn't have 85-year-olds I know running marathons, and I sure as hell wouldn't have 25-year-olds that can't walk more than a half mile. If age was the limiting factor, it's not. It's not a disability. And I get really passionate about this because, you know, I see people in my own life who they go through this, what we call the slippery slope of aging. So it's like, if you can imagine just a graph, and it's not a gradual going down, it's like a straight down slope. And we have kind of three places that people can live. We have the fun category. That would be like my grandparents. They're in their 90s. They have really no limitations. My grandpa golfs. He bowls. They don't have to choose their daily routine based on what they can and can't do. Right? The next category on that is something that we call the functional category. So these are older adults that have to choose what they're going to do in a day. They literally don't have the capacity to go shopping and to go out to eat. They have to pick one. And then past that, you have that frail category. I mean, these are the individuals that are using everything that they have to live. This was essentially up until recently, uh, my father-in-law who diagnosed with stage four lung cancer about a month after COVID started. And you could just see a very sad and gradual decline to the point where him walking from the chair to the bathroom took a very long time. And he had to rest five or six times to get there. And this is why I get so passionate about this. The area under the curve, right, that I just kind of made for you with my hands, that's, um, that's functional reserve. What's the gas you have in the gas tank left over if shit hits the fan? If you fall and break a hip, how much do you have left over? 
to stay alive and to get yourself back. And when you don't have functional reserve, those are the people that we hear about. And I use the hip example because it's a high prevalence. You fall and you break your hip, you end up in the hospital and you end up passing away more than half the time. At least in the United States, that's the stat. And we know what helps mitigate that risk, fucking strength, training, being physically active, but not giving them the one pound ping dumbbell. Like we know that doesn't build strength. And to take this one step farther, and I'm going to say this a little bit facetiously, and I don't mean it in the way I'm going to say it, but like older adults, their freaking back is fused. Their knee is fused. Like they don't have things to break. Like they're literally, they don't have as maybe healthy cartilage and connective soft tissue that you and I have. So it's like, you're not going to hurt them because there isn't like a ton there comparatively like a 25 year old. So the risk actually in my mind becomes a little bit less in terms of intensity for those individuals outside of secondary health issues. Well, Larry's a really good example. I mean, first of all, you know, anybody who's seen the video of him on my feed, Larry's five foot four, like Larry's not a tall dude and he's got a short like uh, back segment. I'm, there's no fear in my mind about giving him the heaviest deadlifts I could possibly throw in his hands. His limitation is probably his grip. He's got powerfully built legs. He's sturdy as all hell. I have no concern and he has no concerns about his back ever giving up. Not remotely worried about this stuff. Uh, we're careful with one of his knees. You know, he spent a lot of time as a plumber pipe fitter. So down on his knees a lot. So one of his knees gets a bit cranky. So we're careful with the squat form. And I'm not remotely scared <clears throat> of him picking up heavy farmer's handles and walking across the gym with them. Is he bench pressing? One of his shoulders really doesn't agree with that. And he doesn't fit on a bench very well. So we don't fuck around with that. He landmine presses. Again, I'm not super scared of him getting hurt doing this sort of stuff. I don't play, you know, I don't treat him with kid gloves. He's really durable. I'm not reckless with him. I don't do anything stupid. You know, I know his capabilities. He's very clear with me what he feels good about doing and where he figures out, you know, this isn't a good idea. Cool. We don't mess with that shit. So he's a joy to trade. Now, not every 71 year old is built like him. And he's a, he's a bit of a, he's certainly a great avatar on, on media to encourage other people. The, the curve that you talked about, that sort of negative curve, that's a negative compound effect. And it's this whole idea that age is somehow this disability. And I agree with you, it's not. It's like the, the research on metabolism. We have this idea that oh, our metabolic rate slows as age. No, that's bullshit. It's just like strength and capability and muscle it's not age itself that is the leading factor for most of that. It's the lifestyle changes as we get older that leads to, well, we're less active. We do less strength training. Yes, we know that natural testosterone levels in, in men decline as we age. And sure, across populations on average, lean muscle mass declines. But how many of those people in those statistics and studies, it's probably heavily weighted because those people aren't physically active and aren't doing anything to maintain that, that muscle mass. So for an individual who trains really consistently, maintains their muscle, maintains their power, then we're preventing that accumulation of all this inactivity and negative compound effect that at a certain point, it can fall off the cliff like a fall. One of the things that was in there, one of the most important things is we get older to prevent major fall injuries is to have more muscle mass, right? If you have more muscle and you fall down, like Larry, I don't want him to fall, but guess what? If that dude falls, He's just going to like land on a whole bunch of muscle. Right. And I'm not super worried that he's going to break something. I don't want to fucking chance that, but I, I, I'm confident that we're doing a lot to protect him. Whereas if I've got a really frail person who comes in, you know, a woman, women are at higher risk of osteoporosis. She's never strength trained. She's very frail. Okay. We got to get her strong, but Lord knows I do not want that woman falling over. No, absolutely. And it's funny. I'll even take you on the osteoporosis thing. So for a while it was osteoporosis, be careful with loading because they're going to fracture. And like, okay, there. when it comes to the low back, we know that's a place. Um, but guess what makes bones stronger? Fucking loading them. Loading the muscles that pull on the bone that makes the bone stronger. So there's just so many things that we tend to just live in a fear mentality. And the risk associated with those things are actually minimal to nil. Um, now that being said, you don't want to be that one person who has that, you know, one in 10 million, but still, it's like, if you're doing smart stuff, if you're connecting with your person, you're asking the right questions. How are you feeling today? How did that feel? Where did you feel it? Were you sore for how long? Like ask those questions. It's going to lead you 
into a much more successful path with every single one of those people than just in the fear mentality and putting them in the pool for the rest of their life. Nothing wrong with the pool, but we got a load. Do you know my friend, Robert Linkle? You're familiar with him? I am. Yes. Robert's wonderful. I've had him on the podcast before. And anybody listening who's really interested in the older adult training stuff, Robert's probably the guy who is the most continuing education stuff built up and specializes in training older adults. So he's really got a library of this sort of stuff. Yeah, I love, I, it's funny. It's, it's nothing I never thought I'd be passionate about. And I am like women's health. I actually am. I never thought I would be, I want to do sports, right? So everyone wants to freaking do older adults. Never thought I'd be passionate about. I am. I think they're such vastly underserved populations uh, and it's things we don't talk about. And let's just, Look at statistics. Who are most of the clients that are probably going to be stepping in our doors? Women more than men. And we have an aging population, older adults who, well, they're willing to spend money because they have the resources. And that's a factor on maintaining their quality of life. Personal trainers should be good with both of those populations. And it's really worth putting in the time and effort to know your shit when it comes to them, especially if you want to have a thriving business. And you can be like, oh, no, I want to work with young athletes. Uh, Young athletes probably won't self-select to you as a new trainer anyway. They're going to be going and knocking on Eric Cressy and Pete Dupuis' door or Tim DeFrancesco's door, Mike Boyles. So you're probably not going to get a lot of them. And it's the parents usually paying for it anyway. I mean, a lot of the young athletes, they don't necessarily have the money. And okay, cool. It'd be like super fun to work with some young athletes. I've had them over the years. But I find working with Larry and my other retirees much more fulfilling. I really love seeing women who have been told don't lift weights, you'll get bulky or blah, 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 whatever bullshit reasons that people tell women not to go into the gym. I love getting them in there and they, they're they a little scared of the environment because they're intimidated by it and making them feel safe. And then after a little while, they're crushing it in there. You can't get them out of the goddamn gym. They're stronger than some of the guys who are in there doing some bullshit routine half the time. And it's really fun to watch them thrive. So I love that stuff. And it's also a key to a lucrative career. And guess what? This matters. Having a lucrative career does keep you in the game to be able to help anybody who shows up at your doorstep. Absolutely. Well, it's funny. I was just, uh, your podcast with uh, David Ote, like I think early in January, um, I was listening to that and he was talking about the burnout rates of the industry. And it's like, people are gone within less than two years for the most part. So, you know, we always, it's funny. You always want to talk about helping people. Physical therapy is the same way. I got into physical therapy to help people, but here's the reality. If you can't make enough money to stay open, to help people, then you won't be helping anyone. So having an appreciation that, you know, more people in the door with certain um, demographics and populations, it's important to know that stuff. And the reality is the more tools you have in your tool belt, you can help more people. Um, the athletes are always interesting. I was fortunate enough to do the professional stuff just where I was having the right opportunity at every five or six years. And like, it was fun, but it was, you know, don't get them hurt. Don't get them fat and don't get them arrested. Like those are the three things when it comes to professional athletes, like usually they're genetically gifted. You just teach them how to move a little bit better and be a little bit more efficient. And we're not doing a ton of sexy stuff because most of the time they just don't need it. You know, you're trying to cycle their training programs through their season. Um, and it's just, it's fun, but it's not in my mind as rewarding as working with just quote unquote regular people. I feel the same way. I've worked with some junior hockey players. And honestly, the ones I've had, they're great kids. Um, I don't even know if I really would want to work with pro-level athletes uh, in those kind of systems. But again, you know, it's easy to say that where I'm up at Edmonton, Alberta, where there's not a whole lot of that up here. <laughs> the Edmonton Oilers, you know, they've got their their people here anyway. So who knows? Maybe one of them will wash up on my on my doorstep. I always find the whole idea of like training celebrities kind of funny too, because it's not really a lot of celebrities, you know, traditional celebrities here in Edmonton. And um, my buddy Lee Boyce, who uh, you, you did it cross paths with, he spoke later in the event because you had to dip in and out and then Lee had to come in late and, and bounce. But uh, he just shared on his media, he's been working with Cal Penn of Harold and Kumar fame uh, recently. right? And, and he's worked with, uh, what's, what's her name? Lindsay Fonseca. I know, and Robbie Amell. The, he's the star of Arrow. So Lee's like worked with a few of these like celebrity types. And he, he, honestly, he's earned it from just his legacy of writing and coaching and his media. Um, and I've done this stuff in a presentation too. Where it's like one of the ways you could build some brand capital and like, you know, credibility 
is to work with athletes, but you're not going to actually seek them out. They're ultimately going to find you. If you're lucky enough to have one land in your lap because you're in the right place, which is really half of it, then, okay, cool. You can do the Ben Bruno thing or the Don Saladino thing where it's like, cool, you know, here I am training Ryan Reynolds or Kate Upton or Justin Timberlake. But for everybody else, get really good at taking care of older adults, uh, women in the gym, you know, people of, of all ages and capabilities. Absolutely, man. That's because that's how we're going to honestly, and I, I say this, like, that's how we're going to help change the betterment of the entire health of the fucking world. I know that sounds like a big goal. That's my goal. Like, I mean, my goal is I want to be a badass when I'm 80. Like, I want to be lifting with my daughter when I'm 80 years old in the gym. I want to be that guy everyone's looking at, like, this fucking guy's back deadlifting again. Like, I want to do that. But then I want to make, like, the rest of our society just healthier. Like, it's just ridiculous kind of where we're at. Well, I it's hope sad. To, <laughs> I hope we're going in the right direction. Anything that uh, you're seeing, any expectations you have for the industry kind of coming up the next year, positive trends, anything that gets you excited? Well, what gets me excited is, you know, it's funny. We're, uh, we're planning out. We have our schedule for 2022 set. You know, we're looking at different cities for the PPFC and trying to figure out, well, shoot, are we going to need masks here? Are people going to be have to have vaccines? March 1st, a lot of states finally fucking got rid of vaccine and mask requirements. Hmm. So I'm excited for the industry in terms of whatever people weren't coming in are going to start coming in. Coupling that with, I know we have a lot of uh, people on our networks, like people are looking to hire. People are busy. Um, and then couple that with the burnout rates so many people shifting to online coaching. I truly believe online coaching is here to stay. Nothing wrong with it. Shit. I did telehealth for a couple months. Didn't really like it, but it was still a way to positively impact people, whatever in-person stuff. I swear to God, better fucking come back this year. Like that should be back. That's honestly what I'm excited for the most. It's, it's surging in my mind. I mean, we were lucky. I mean, Alberta's kind of this quirky entity. I mean, yes. And, Political, social, sociological viewpoints tend to bias towards how people behave. <clears throat> and Edmonton is, tends to be a more liberal city in a conservative province. But there's a good mix in the city. And what I found is, I mean, shit, you know, hey, I was kind of keeping this on the low, but I set up a home gym and I was working the entire time. Too bad, deal with it. You know, I had people who literally said to me, this saved my life. So if you got a problem with it, I don't care, fuck you. Uh, I took care of the people who were, you know, key parts of my life, including Larry. And it was, there was a lot of demand for it. People wanted to train. Obviously when we were open, Evolve, Evolve was really busy. People felt safe there. The general etiquette and the way people operate in that place was really good. So the member base really felt safe and Evolve has come out the other side of it, thriving and growing and doing really well. We saw a lot of the Canadian gyms take a big hit. Uh, the organization I used to work for, now they were going down the tubes for years anyway. They were on the verge of bankruptcy and then they did ultimately go bankrupt. And people like me and a lot of the other trainers who left, we saw the writing on the wall six years ago. We're like, we're getting out of here. These guys are not on top of shit. Uh, but I am seeing the gyms are busy. People are surging back. They want to be back in the gym environments. You know, I've got a home gym I can work out at. I still go to gyms most of the time to work out and hold memberships because I really fucking like the environment and I find it lights me up. So I feel really good about that. And I think we're also going to see a lot of people who the last two years made them look in the mirror and go, shit, this was not good to me. I've gained weight. I don't feel good. I don't have good energy. And I think people are waking up and realizing that the best, and I, again, I, and no one listening, I don't want anybody to take this as a, as a statement of anything else. And I think healthcare interventions that can help for a better outcome, explore them, be evidence-based, go into them. But the best thing you can possibly do for your long-term health and well-being is to stay physically active, to strength train, to manage your nutrition, to do things that are physically and mentally healthy. And being shut in and fearful is not good or healthy for anybody. The best vaccine is to just take care of your health. The evidence will tell you that too. I mean, I, and I understand, like you said, the political, the, all that, like put all that aside, just like when you're healthier, that's the best vaccine you can have. And you know it's funny talking about, you know, I know lots of people that were still training clients during COVID shutdowns. And this is why I think that also matters. Um, I remember I had a, a patient of mine that we were seeing. So a healthcare provider, we 
shut our clinics down for about two to three weeks. So we did what everyone else did, even as a healthcare provider. We didn't have to, but we did that because it was the two-week thing, right? So we did telehealth for a little bit. And then finally, people rolled back in and, and whatever, right? Um, I remember I had a patient of mine who during that time, her best friend committed suicide. And, and her best friend committed suicide during COVID because all the gyms shut down. And that was that person's one outlet for their mental health. And we know mental health gym is much better than any pill we could give someone. Um, mental health, it wasn't there. That outlet wasn't there. That got taken away. So I see all the things going on worldwide. It's crazy world right now. Um, and it's easy for me to say, I'm sure, and some other people have harder situations, but doing physical things, being able to feel confident in those physical things, there's nothing better. There is no better feeling. And when you can do that, you are a better person, husband, father, son, daughter. I mean, this is why I train every day. I do it because yes, I like training and I'm a little bit obsessed like you, like everyone else who I'm sure comes on your show and the people we talk to, right? But for the general like population, just training makes you a better human. Like, I truly believe that. It makes me a better human. And that's why it's a non-negotiable for me every single day. I'm a better father, husband, son. I'm a better person going on a podcast, right? I'm a better presenter. I am all those things because I can enjoy training. For me, it's training. For some other people, it's just exercise. I don't really care. But it's, it, it's a, I think, the most the biggest impact we can have for sure in those aspects. Let's leave it there. Where do people find you online to dive into more of your stuff? If people want to see me and my daughter, most of mostly my daughter in my basement in my gym working out, it's at Dr. Justin Farnsworth, just my name um, on Instagram. I have a really non-fancy Instagram page. I just like putting out fun stuff. Um, I have zero website. I have zero things to sell people. Um, I do run and work for the PPSC. So check us out, getppsc.com. Um, if you haven't heard of us, I think we're pretty cool. I truly believe in our mission. I quit a full-time clinical job to come work for the PPSC full-time. That's how much I believe in what we do. Um, so we are all about that live, in-person, continuing education. And I mean, we hustle, man. We are everywhere. So hit, hit us up there. Your, your team, I got to hang out with them at Raise the Bar in Florida. I got to hang out with them at... Uh, Luca's uh, Vigor in September. You know, you guys are at all these things and uh, I've done the course. Logan Dubay has become a good friend. Who Logan does the Canadian stuff. Logan's amazing. Great, great presenter. And what I've noticed is you guys do so many presentations. You guys do so many courses that your team invariably become really goddamn good at public speaking. So for everybody listening, if you are finding me for the first time through Justin's media, uh, I've had David Ote, I've had Logan Dubay, I've had John Russell, and I've had Clifton. Clifton way back, so I got to get him back. I've had the, some of the team on here. Check through the library of episodes of the who's who of the industry. Go check out Robert Lincoln's episode when it comes to older adult stuff. And I'd love to, for you to stick around. Shoot me a message on Instagram. I definitely want to connect with you there if you're not following Andrew Coates Fitness on Instagram. And I hope everybody has a great day. Justin, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.